0: Welcome to the Prosthetic Experience. Through the Prosthetic Experience, you will experience a changing field and how an inspiring, holistic view of prosthetics and bionics is helping overcome the immense obstacles that life brings. Episode 3, A Surgeon's Perspective, features a surgeon, Dr. Matt Cardi, who upcreate one of the most innovative amputation methods, allowing incredible bionics to be used. In this episode, you will hear about the new technology and the future of the field of prosthetics the experience of a surgeon performing complex amputations, and finally, Dr. Kari's perspective on the changing field and where the dangers of a superior to human bionics might take us. This is the prosthetic experience. Good afternoon, Matt. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I'm very excited to discuss uh, your experience with the incredibly unique field of innovative amputations in bionics and your work with the MIT Media Lab. Uh, so I think first, can we just start off with a little introduction and then explain what you're currently doing in the medical field and also your former work with amputations?
1: Sure. So my name. So first of all, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. i um, always happy to share. Uh, not only the work that we 're doing, but the really exciting stuff that 's going on with regards to advances in the care of patients with severe limb injuries it's uh we 're really in the middle of a renaissance right now, so I always get very excited about talking about this because what we can offer folks with these types of injuries now is is it 's really hard to it 's really hard to fully capture how much better things are now, and it sets a very Uh, rosy picture for what may be possible in the coming years and decades and so on. Uh, But in in answer to your question, so my name is Matt Carty. I'm a reconstructive plastic surgeon. I work at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I've been on staff there since uh, 2009. And uh, my my clinical practice is one that focuses on, I, I actually take care of two patient populations primarily. I take care of women with breast cancer who have lost their uh, and we we perform the reconstruction. Um, yeah. I also specialize in complex limb reconstruction, uh, which also happens to be my area of research research
0: interest, um, uh, which kind of really segues into why we're here today. Yeah, I mean, those are two pretty different fields. So, uh, how did you kind of get into those fields and transition?
1: Well, reconstructive plastic surgery is a fairly broad field. When, yes. When most people hear, uh, hear the profession plastic surgery, they think of cosmetic plastic surgery, which is definitely a part of what we do, but it's only about 10% of the universe of plastic surgery. I, I'm almost exclusively reconstructive. Uh, my primary interest coming out of training was in microsurgical reconstruction, which refers to techniques where... We take tissue from one part of the body and move it completely to another part of the body in order to rebuild things that have been lost because of cancer or trauma or congenital abnormalities, whatever the case may be. Um, uh, the initial phases of my uh, of my professional career were focused primarily on breast reconstruction. And then, that, as I said, that remains about 50 percent, 60 percent of my practice. Yeah. Um, but I also did training in hand uh, reconstruction uh, and, and there's a lot of uh, the, the principles that we apply to hand reconstruction, apply to the lower extremity as well. So when yes. I started the the other kind of half of what the clinical need was, was in complex limb reconstruction. And that therefore became um, kind of accidentally
0: became a core research interest of mine. That makes sense. I've read a bit about you and I've watched the augmented Ar- documentary as well. And I want to talk more about the Ewing amputation. So can you explain what that is? But can you describe that process and then also the process you took to create such a procedure?
1: Yeah, of course. So I think there are a couple of things to understand. So in order to understand the novelty of the Ewing amputation and its various iterations, it's important to understand what a standard amputation looks like and what are the limitations of that. So when we think about Limb loss. Uh, the 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 operative tech, the surgical techniques we apply to remove a limb that's compromised, or or to close up the stump of a limb that's been amputated traumatically, like in a car accident or something, uh, or with an explosive device. Uh, the the techniques that we typically apply in those settings really haven't evolved much since the time of the Civil War. In other words, if if I showed you a textbook from the late 1800s that showed how to perform an amputation, it really doesn't look that much different than the textbooks that have been published you know, five years ago for a really? living amputation. Yeah, And so, I, I mean, think about that for a second. How many other things can you think of that haven't really evolved much in 200 plus years? So the, uh, and, and part of the reason for that is, is that the the goals of amputation for a very long time have been relatively simple. Uh, they've been primarily to to provide a stable, closed wound um, and to ideally to provide a padded platform for mounting of some kind of a limb substitute. And whether that's a tree branch that you strap to your leg or your arm or something more advanced, uh, it, you know, those two priorities, stable coverage and, and padding to mount something, have been the demands of an amputated limb for 200 plus years. What's changed, however, is that with technolog- technological advancements, in particular those that have that have come up in the course of the last 10, 20 years or so, uh, have uh, have changed what our goals are by expanding the realm of possibility. So, in part because of increasing miniaturization of electronics, and in fact a lot of the electronics that are for example are in our cell phones now are the yeah. same types of electronics that have been applied to limb prosthetic devices and so in addition to a um, in addition to providing closed wound stable padding now what what's demanded of a residual limb which is a fancy way of saying a stump yes. is something that provides an interface for prosthetic control Something that provides some degree of sensory feedback, um, and something that ideally also provides what's referred to as proprioception, which is the sense of where your limb is in space. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna explain that. So like second.
0: so kind of like phantom limb, or is it a little different? Well, than
1: limb? so so phantom limb is an, an aberrant form of proprioception. So. What proprioception refers to is that when we when we move our limb in space. So so for example, if you you know, I, I'll ask our listeners to do this right now in, in, in the absence of visual aids, but if you kind of hold your arm up and you cock your wrist up. In other words, you extend your wrist upwards, like you're like you're swinging back, almost like with a ten- with a tennis racket in your hand. Yes. You, when you do that, what you can feel is you can feel the muscles in the back side of your forearm contract and pull that wrist up into position. But if you pay attention to it, what you can also feel is, are the muscles on the other side of your forearm stretching. And what that that that's what's referred to as an agonist antagonist relationship. And what happens when we're doing that is that specialized fibers in those muscles uh, are triggered or activated and they actually transmit specific information back to our brain that tells us where our limb is in space. And, and the, the relevance of that is that it is it enables us to have a sense of where our limb is without having to look at it. This is why yes. we can walk without having to look at our feet all the time. That's why we can dance. It's why we can do all these amazing things with our hands and so on. But when somebody undergoes a standard amputation, that normal dynamic interactivity of muscles, that is lost. That relationship is severed. And yes. these muscles are allowed to basically scar in to their knee. It basically, it, they're allowed to scar in, in place and you know, when somebody who has a transradial amputation, in other words, an amputation above the level of the wrist, when they think about moving their wrist, which is no longer there, they're able to contract those muscles still, but they can't stretch the muscles at the same time. And that yes. leads to a decoupling of the normal relationships that exist. And and what happens is, is that leads to an aberrant sense of the limb and space. So phantom sensation what you had just raised phantom sensation refers to the sense of still having a limb when it's no longer there like phantom limb sensation by itself is not a bad thing like feeling as though the limb is still there that's not a bad thing what is a bad thing however is when that becomes painful and that's referred to as phantom limb pain um, because that is essentially that is a pain that you can't treat the limb, is, you're, you're experiencing the, the pain in a limb that's no longer there. It's like an itch you can't scratch. Um, and it can also be accompanied with an aberrant sense of where the limb is. In other words, the patient feels like their foot or their hand is floating in space somewhere else or it's scrunched up or wh- whatever the case may be. So so all of this is a very long way of saying that that normal or standard approaches to amputation don't permit these additional functional uh, possibilities. And yes. that so that' segues to the Ewing amputation. So what what the Ewing amputation incorporates is a surgical construct that's referred to as an agonist antagonist myoneural interface. So the easiest way to think about this is that at the time of amputation, we couple muscles that whose relationships are normally severed, and we create almost like miniature pulley systems within the limb that emulate the function of an intact limb, but that, limb is no longer, that joint is no longer there. So the yes. two muscles, for example, that allow you to raise your wrist or flex your wrist, we pair those in a miniature pulley in the setting of, a, of an upper extremity amputation, for example, such that when a patient with that level of amputation activates those muscles, they experience the normal agonist antagonist relationship, that contracture of one side and stretch of the other, that makes their brain think that 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 joint is still there. that's still in place. Yes, and, and that has several that has several implications. Um, one is that when we when we conceive this idea, and i and I'll come back to the conception phase of this in a, in a moment. But when we conceive this idea, um, what we hoped at a minimum is that patients would experience a preserved or restored sense of a limb being in pl- in space where it's supposed to be um in other words they would they would experience a sense of phantom limb sensation that accurately approximates where their limb used to be and, the, and that they would experience their phantom as being like a ghost limb that's in space where it where it, where it should be
0: yeah so it like uh, lev- it leverages the feeling that they already have um, of that limb well, or what it
1: leverages it? Is, is is well that limb is no longer there, but what it does is that it, it, it restores the natural neural pathways, place in an uninjured limb. So, so we're 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 basically taking yes. the body's normal uh, infrastructure and peripheral nerve. Uh, we're, we're reengineering the peripheral nerve system to To recapitulate normal pathways that are no longer present, So the, we're kind of tricking the brain into thinking that the limb is still there um, by using all the normal biological tools that we have in an intact limb, but just reconfiguring them in, an, in a modified setting. Um, That's incredible. And, and, and so, so the idea behind this is that it was that what we had hoped to achieve was not only a restored sense of proprioception. But also ideally, a much a much improved pain profile for patients who have amputees. and also and two more things. one was to actually achieve a much healthier residual limb. In other words, one of, one of the problems that faces amputees long term is that they experience atrophy of their limb because they're not using their muscles normally, so these muscle these, these uh, limbs shrink over time. And that causes substantial problems with their sockets and their prosthetic devices and so on. So one of the ideas behind the EMI as well, which is the acronym for agonist antagonist myoneural interface, we call it an EME now. Um, So one of the ideas behind EMEs is that we hope that they may actually help preserve the volume of limbs and amputees for a much longer period of time. And, and, And last is that if we are able to couple these modified amp- amputation limbs with adapted technology that we would be able to achieve function that was you know you know heretofore on you know only dreamed of uh, yes. and so we were merging technology with with surgical innovation um, and and so th- those were the four things that we hope to achieve with this um, in, in terms of your question about how we conceived this I I am I, um, so actually, this this is very important to understand. Our you know these days with innovation, innovation never comes as the brainchild of any one single individual. And, and yes, I would, I would never represent our experience here. This this was not my conception alone by any stretch. Um, uh, actually, our the primary collaboration with this was with me and um, Hugh Hare, who uh, uh, runs uh, the Center for Extreme Bionics at the MIT Media Lab. And so Hugh and I actually had a meeting about seven eight years ago. It was ostensibly to talk about other stuff. We were we were I had some ideas about um, limb transplantation, which we were working on, uh, and wanted to ask him about cutting edge prosthetic technology. And so we had this meeting, and in the course of that. I had mentioned to him that I, I was thinking that there should be a better way of doing amputation, and I had had some ideas about this based on our work in transplantation, but he had also had some ideas about this uh, relative to prosthetic interfaces, and that yes. led to his series of brainstorming sessions that actually unfolded over the course of about a year and a half, two years, uh, ultimately led to the development of the idea of the Amy. Uh, that then led to us uh, doing about a year and a half of work with animals to vet this fully, and then finally to translate to humans. So this actually had a fairly long runway, uh, but it was very much a collaborative effort that actually involved, you know, like 10, 12 people in its conception, um, but has since manifest in a way that was like way more successful, frankly, than we ever expected.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. Um, so you said ten to twelve people you've you worked with as you were testing it. How accessible has this surgery become?
1: Well, so initially initially we were the only place doing it because we were the ones that conceived it. Um, yes, when, when when you do when you are doing novel clinical work that leads to translation in human beings, uh, this is considered experimental, and this is very. This is something that we explain very in you know in stark detail with our patients, um, but it requires approval. Of what's known as as an institutional review board, we have to go through this ethical review process and get permission to do these types of operations. Yes. Uh, so so we went through the IRB process. We became the only site, basically approved. To do this operation, so we started doing it at the Brigham and the Faulkner, which is a, which is another MGB hospital here in Boston. Uh, but what started to happen fairly soon afterwards is we developed a collaboration with. Um, with uh, several of the surgeons down at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center who would take care of wounded warriors. Yes. Um, this was right around the time the Department of Defense started to become interested in our work and actually gave us several grants to explore it further. And so, uh, so our colleagues down at Walter Reed started doing these in in wounded uh, in wounded in wounded warriors, as I said. Uh, but then, since then, it started. You know. Uh, we're aware of this being done in California by a couple of providers. It's being done by a team in um, in Ohio. It's been done um, by actually folks uh, over in Europe. And I think there have been about 20 of them done in Europe so far. So we're getting to a point right now where we're gaining traction. And this comes in part with going, you know, presenting our findings in national meetings and so on. And And we've done, um, we've done thirty four. Uh, Ewing amputations, which refers to an Amy operation for a below knee amputation, but we've also done six above knee level amputations and we've done six upper extremity procedures as well. Uh, and as we've gone and spoken about these and, and written about it in the literature and been published and so on, uh, more and more people are starting to adopt this, which is really exciting.
0: So, is it possible to do this amputation for all types of amputations or are there limitations to certain body parts that? Would not allow it to happen.
1: No, so 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 we so far have done basically below knee, above knee, below elbow, and above elbow. Yeah, um, yeah we've done those as acute amputations, meaning a patient. We, we meet the patient before they undergo amputation, and we perform the amputation and do the amies at the same time. But we've also started to do these in patients who had already had amputations and we go back and revise them. So we basically create Amys in patients who have previously undergone amputation. Uh, in, in, that, that wasn't exactly what you asked, but but you know towards yes. what you're asking, you know we believe that there are applications for this as well in patients with spinal cord injuries or various other types of paralytic conditions uh and so we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what we can of the full applications for this and that's kind of the next stage of exploration that we're working on now
0: yeah and i think that this exploration and in- new innovation is going to be so interesting to observe in the coming years so i think it's so important that you're doing this and kind of helping develop this field so um and now i'm going to segue into talking about your documentary Augmented, where. You were featured in it discussing the Ewing amputation. And I wanted to talk about Hugh Herr, who I thought his, his story really was all about innovation, how this tragedy, um, he was this prodigy rock climber and he ended up getting in the rock climbing accident. And he lost both of his legs. And from this, he started innovating and he made his own specialized prosthetics and um, started working with you with these bionics. Um, so I, I wanted to just talk about innovation. And so really what is uh, like an innovation or a direction that once seemed impossible in this field, but now seems attainable in the near future.
1: Well, I, I frankly, even the stuff that we're doing now once seemed I- impossible. Yes. So, so the fact, you know, one of the things that you know, Hugh has an amazing story. Yes, it, it, it's a, it, you know, it's a, it's an amazing example of, of triumph uh, coming out of tragedy, and um, um, it speaks to. It speaks to the soulful commitment that people have to make the world a better place, right yes. um, and you know, whether that's born out of a of a tragedy like you know a climbing accident or you know f- for us um, part of the actually the part of the catalyst funding that came for us for this project for the Amys came out of the Boston Marathon bombings actually yes uh, so so th- this has been born from a couple different forms of tragedy. Um, and trying to turn it into something that benefits mankind, but but that, that's a digression. In answer to your question, um, you know, even even what appears in the documentary and augmented, there's a there's a. Um, There's a prototype foot that is depicted in that that show that that Jim Ewing. uh, So the Ewing amputation is named after our first patient who underwent this operation. So Jim was uh, that that seemed to be a much better idea than naming it after us or naming it after Boston or whatever. Um, So so Jim Ewing has had uh, has had access to some technology that enables um, him to. Climb in a way that he can he can use a motorized ankle um, or even in the lab uh, do these things with technology that are not available kind of over the counter yet. So so this speaks to a level of functionality um, that really is approaching normal uh, yes. in an uninjured state. Now, what gets really interesting here is when you start to say, well, why stop there? Like, like, why is normal uh, uh, our our upper limit? And and the short answer is it's not. So, you know, a very rudimentary example of this is that, uh, you know, several years ago, Hugh and I were having dinner together. We were talking about some of this work. Um, and at one point uh we got into a discussion about how tall he was before he had his accidents, and I think he had said he was five eight five nine or something. Well, guess what when he wears his legs now he 's like six two <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I mean that that's a that, that's a kind of a, a like a facetious example um but technology uh and surgical innovation may provide a pathway in the not so distant future to achieve functional levels that surpass that of a normal intact human body Um, that introduces very you know interesting ethical concerns and you know is it is it going to be a good idea to do operations on people that would be considered elective in order to give them a function that that is greater than what they have you know in their healthy state
0: Yeah, and I think these questions are really important to consider, uh, especially when thinking about the dangers of creating bionics that are superior to human or um, could be used in the military or for things that really aren't safe. So what are your thoughts on that aspect of these bionics and your amputation?
1: I think that there is, um, I think that this is essentially an amoral, Question: uh, What what I mean by that is is that there is as much havoc that could be wrought from doing that as there is potential, uh, you know, immeasurable, right. yes. immeasurable good, right? So so imagine, you know, we could give somebody, uh, I don't know, at, you know, the ability to control a device that has seven, like seventeen fingers, and they could create yeah. they could create the most amazing music that we've ever heard, right? The, the More yes. beautiful than we've ever imagined. Uh, like is is that a boon to society? Yeah, like maybe. Uh, could we create the function of you know? So a silly example, but something that Hugh mentioned in one of his TED talks is you you know would we have the ability to give to to make it so people could fly? Could we give people wings? Right? Is is that a possibility? Uh, yeah, that 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 might be possible. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I, that's the kind of thing that could be used for amazing triumphs of the human race or like horrible horrible things right yeah Um,
0: so so, yeah there's a lot of positives and negatives so you're right right. so
1: so i I mean are there military applications to all of this Uh, of course there are that's part of the reason why the department of defense helps fund us yes Um, you know it's it's ostensibly right now to figure out ways to get uh wounded warriors back to functionality as quickly as possible um uh but you know would there potentially be options to make a super soldier of some kind. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure there would be.
0: Yeah. But I think, I guess, you, I mean, so what you're saying is it just is whether like how it's used. So, I mean, there can be Correct. good, more good than bad. And, yeah. um, in that it's, sense. Like,
1: it's like, it's like any emerging technology. It's like the internet, you know, the internet is, is capable of these amazing things. Yeah. yeah, yeah and
0: all of this stuff is coming out right same, now. Same type of thing. Um, <laughs>
1: I think it also gets into a very interesting discussion then about what does it mean to be human, which is probably beyond the, uh, beyond the, um, beyond the scope of this discussion, but, but it gets into really, really heady philosophical territory very quickly. Um, And these are, these are going to be things that we wrestle with in the coming years, you know, not only with advances in prosthetic technology and surgical innovation, but things like, you know, gene editing and all of this stuff speaks to like core questions about what we define as human. And uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting next hundred years.
0: I hope you enjoyed and thank you for listening.